Welcome to the Afghanistan Project Podcast. I am your host, Beth Bailey, and I'm really thrilled today to introduce you to our guest, Heather Barr. If you've been reading about the difficulties facing Afghan women in the aftermath of the Taliban's takeover, then you're likely already familiar with Heather's tremendous advocacy work as the Associate Director of the Women's Rights Division at Human Rights Watch. If you haven't run into Heather's work yet, then stay tuned because you are in for a crash course on the problems facing Afghan women and why those problems impact all of Afghanistan and the West. Uh, just for a bit about Heather's background, prior to her 12-year career at Human Rights Watch, she worked with the UN Office on Drugs and Crime and the UN Development Program. Also during and after receiving her JD from Columbia Law School, Heather worked to support prisoners who battled mental health disorders so that they could achieve justice through the uh, Mental Health Project and as the director and founder of the Nathaniel Project. Heather, it's so great to have you here. Thanks for taking the time to join us and talk about this really important issue. Thanks so much for inviting me and thanks for, for yeah, caring about this issue so much. I know that everybody who listens really does. It's This is the key thing, I think, that you know, the Taliban takeover has harmed so many Afghan women. So I want to, before we get started, I'd like to plug, you did a podcast recently with Ro Yacobi. It's a really great episode. It's about an hour long. And you guys talk about your long history in Afghanistan of, and I loved your story about 9-11 and, and being there at 9-11 and all these things. You've been tied to the country in, in a way for some time. And you talked about the paths toward holding the Taliban accountable for their crimes against Afghan women. And I'd urge everyone to give that episode a listen before or after you hear this. If you need to pause right now and go listen. But um, the things you guys discussed are vital. And I'm going to try to veer away from rehashing those conversations because you can listen to them on that podcast. But what I really want to focus on is something that we at the podcast haven't been able to cover in depth yet. And that's the effect on women that the Taliban takeover has had, their utter loss of human rights. Um, and just to start, because you were involved with the UN and you mentioned in Rose's podcast that you had some involvement in programs that were meant to help women in Afghanistan. Um, I'd love to hear more about what those programs were and what kind of, you know, what was the intent with the programming and what was the success or lack thereof in those programs while you were there? Um, thanks. Um, thanks for inviting me. So, um, so I went to Afghanistan first in 2007 to work, as you said, for the United Nations Development Program. Um, I, I was a deputy to uh, an Afghan woman who was an assistant country director, and, and our portfolio included human rights and democracy, um, and and also yeah, including elections, um, which was of course a, a fascinating thing to work on. I mean, and then after two years in that role, I moved over to the UN Office on Drugs and Crime, where initially my job was to work on anti-corruption, and then my boss quit, and I ended up managing a, a broader portfolio that included um, justice reform and legislative drafting and so on. But you know, I mean, I have a lot of I have a lot of thoughts about. Um, the work that the international community did in Afghanistan. And, and of course, it's all in dust and ruins now, but it, it wasn't in great shape before. Um, the last time I went back to Afghanistan was in April 2021 to write a report about how women's access to healthcare was was crashing um, because the international community, um, you know, had built a system that was dependent on international aid and then was withdrawing that aid. Um, you know, when I worked on anti-corruption, I saw that, you know, the international community had really contributed in very significant ways to the, the level of corruption in Afghanistan. I, I saw, you know, again and again and again how 
um, you know, supposed big government plans for, you know, how the government was going to reform the justice sector or reform multiple different sectors across the whole government were, were written by by foreign staff members or foreign consultants rather than the ministries themselves and, and never necessarily had very much buy-in from those ministries. So I think that, um, you know, the, the sort of level of competence and skill and, and sort of genuine understanding of how, you know, you can help people do things, but but they need to like lead themselves was was often missing in Afghanistan. And, and you know, when we saw a lot of the, the usual stuff with, you know, big for-profit contractors making huge amounts of money off of contracts to, to deliver various supposed capacity building in Afghanistan, that money coming into the country and going straight back out again. And so, you know, it's, I get frustrated when people sort of say, well, oh, everything was so terrible before. So that, you know, suggesting that the Taliban takeover didn't make a difference because that's absolutely not true and particularly not for women. But but let's also not romanticize what Afghanistan was like on August 14th, 2021. In many cases, as a case study for what not to do in, in you know, sort of state building and capacity building and international aid and, and so on. I think it was a disaster and that's not even touching the the issue of the military strategy which you know i don't feel very qualified to comment on not being a military expert by any stretch of the imagination but but people often you know sort of joked in a very grim way about how you know afghanistan was a a 20-year war that had that had had 20 different strategy military strategies you know and and i don't know if that's true or not but we all know how it ended Yes. And it was a really tragic thing. I had not heard about the uh, women's health in, on the decline, but that makes perfect sense. You know, we had gotten the birth rate down and we had worked so hard to help women in that regard. And it's very disheartening to hear that that was already underway before the Taliban came in and really decimated access even further. I mean, we, yeah. I mean we, we also saw, so we did Human Rights Watch, we did a report in 2018 <clears throat> about girls' education. And one of the things that we found then in 2018 is that attendance rates for girls were already falling in many provinces. And that was because of insecurity. It was because, um, you know, the schools didn't really exist. You know, there weren't enough schools available for, for the students. Um, the government wasn't being very serious about trying to promote gender equality in the education sector. So, you know, there were there were a lot of problems and, and we as foreigners uh, deserve a lot of the blame for those problems. You know, I don't want to I don't want to sort of make it sound like Afghans have no agency and, and certainly plenty of, of Afghans, including ones in the, the former government, lined their pockets very thoroughly. But, you know, our, our sort of patting ourselves on the back for all the, the good that we did is, is, is pretty misguided. And, um, you know, and also some of these stories that I feel like people are telling themselves, particularly in Washington, about how, um, you know, everything's the fault of the Afghans and we don't owe them anything because they didn't fight for their country or whatever. That's, that's incredibly, incredibly, um, you know, untrue and, and, and dishonest and harmful to say that when we know how extraordinarily high the, the casualty rates were for, for members of the Afghan National Army. Absolutely. I've we've had some of them on the show and to hear their, you know, efforts up until the final moments, you know, being in Helmand the day before they took Lashkar Ga, I believe, or something, you know, it's it's galling to see. And you're right, we need to look at our own because this is 
not only is this a crisis that's ongoing, but this is a time to learn that lesson of intervention and state building. You know, is that something we should engage in in the future or how can we help a country in a way that is sustainable, that actually makes an impact where we don't like a rubber band snap back to women not being able to get health care and all of those things that we we put so much blood and treasure into just retreating. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, on the topic of learning lessons, I, I, I'd love to say a word or two about the Afghan War Commission, if I could. Um, please. This, <laughs> this, of course, is a body that's been set up, you know, by the U.S., um, by the U.S. government to to try to learn those lessons. And I think we've seen in some other countries um, that that they also have done these kinds of lessons learned um, exercises. And in some other countries, I think, um, you know, I, I give them some credit for having been pretty, pretty tough with themselves and, and pretty honest. Um, we've expressed concern, though, about the U.S. Um, Afghan War Commission. Um, it doesn't include any women's rights experts. It doesn't include any human rights experts. Um, you know, it seems to be very narrowly focused on military strategy and really not taking on any of these kind of broader concerns about what types of, you know, ways in which the, the U.S. government used human rights and women's rights as a propaganda tool to, to garner support for the war, made, you know, a two decades worth of promises, you know, we will always stand by you, we will never leave you alone. That's Hillary Clinton as Secretary of State, but many other um, U.S. officials made similar statements and then just walked away, you know, and, and left this complete disaster behind them and, and don't seem to, and, you know, and what we get after that is Joe Biden saying, I want to talk about happy things, you know. Um, I don't know if you remember that, that I press do. conference. Yes, just before mm -hmm. the 4th of July. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that, this is why the podcast exists, is because there are so many people who put all of themselves into trying to make this better. There were people who were, working just to get a paycheck, sure. But a lot of people who worked in Afghanistan really developed a heart for the people of Afghanistan, for the country itself. And they're all impacted by these callous remarks that have been made, you know, and not just the Biden's remark, but Kirby talking about the chaos. I didn't see any chaos at HKIA. And it, how not? You know, these there are so many people who are impacted by what happened. And I would just love to see honesty and some self-reflection and and then doing something for Afghan women, which is why I would love to flash forward to the withdrawal. Um, we almost always are talking with everyone who comes on about, you know, what was your experience of the withdrawal? And I'd love to ask you, you know, the Taliban said when they took over that they were going to honor women's rights within the norms of Islamic law. What were you, your thoughts when you heard them make that promise? You know, I mean, I've always had the, the great privilege of hearing what Afghan women think about Taliban promises. And so, um, you know, it turned out that they were completely right. When the Taliban were making similar promises in Doha, and they were saying that, you know, women would be able to work, girls would be able to study. Afghan women were saying that's nonsense. There's no way that they'll do that. There's no, there is no Taliban 2.0, you know, there's just Taliban is Taliban. And, um, and then when they held that press conference, I think it was on August 17th, two days after they'd taken over, and they said the same things again. And, and Afghan women said, no, you know, don't believe it for a second. And I think it was about a day and a half later that they started their crackdown on women. I think the first thing that they did was fire fire women from the, the national television station. And, and it's gone on from there, you know. So, 
um, you know, and, and it's interesting to, to kind of tie that to the discussions that we keep having about um, Security Council Resolution 1325, which is about how women have the right to be full participants in all discussions about their country's future, including peace negotiations. You know, if if women, if Afghan women had been full participants in the discussions that happened in Doha, I'm telling you that like it wouldn't have been as easy for everyone to pretend to believe that the Taliban's false promises, you know, and, and we're still seeing um, governments and the UN itself repeating that mistake of shutting Afghan women out of these really critical decisions, you know. Um, I think back in Doha, it was really convenient, um, you know, for U.S. diplomats to to pretend to believe the Taliban. You know, I, I think I think even they couldn't really have believed these promises, you know, the Taliban suddenly, you know, believing in gender equality. Um, but it was but it was very, very convenient for the Taliban to make those promises and for U.S. diplomats to pretend to believe them because they were leaving no matter what. And this gave them a bit of a fig leaf to do so. Sure. And and at the meantime, we've got all these reports. I remember in the earliest days, there were reports of the Taliban going through towns. And as they did, they would go and take all of the unmarried women, whether they were widows or just young girls of uh, above airy, marrying age, which I debate that age assertion, but that they were taking them as wives, forced marriage, that they, you know, all of these allegations and the world just kind of turned a blind eye and said, no, that's not happening. And like you said, we have these orders. What were some of the other early orders that indicated that, no, things are not all right here and, and that promise has been broken aside from firing women from national TV? When did we start to see that progression? So within the first couple of weeks, um, women who were showing up to work in, at government jobs um, were told that they should stay home. And of course, you know, they were told that in a, in a way that made it sound like it was temporary. And no, of course, it wasn't temporary at all. Um, I think it was about a month later that we saw the ban on secondary education for girls. Again, you know, with this language making it sound like it was temporary. Um, and it's just gone on from there. I mean, it's it's impossible to list all of the, the different things that have happened. But obviously, some of the some of the particularly memorable ones are, are women being banned from higher education as well. Um, women being banned from working for international NGOs, women being banned from working for the United Nations. And then you have, you know, so these are sort of, you know, big, huge fundamental ones, freedom of movement, you know, women being banned from leaving the country without a mahram, women being banned from traveling more than 70 kilometers without um, a mahram with them. Um, and women being required in some places to bring a mahram with them to healthcare appointments, which is not only a, a barrier to receiving healthcare, but a violation of, of women's confidentiality. What if you're going to get birth control or treatment for an STD or an abortion? Um, those kinds of things. But uh, And then there are some that, um, well, I mean, another one we should mention is the closure of beauty salons, which, you know, might seem like you know, like not that big a deal, but it's nothing to do with getting your hair and nails done. It's 60,000 women were working in beauty salons and all of those women lost their jobs. And there's one other reason that the beauty salons were important, which is that one of the first things that the Taliban did was systematically dismantle the entire system that had been very painfully put in place to deal with domestic violence and other forms of gender-based violence. So a system of shelters, a law, the 2009 Law on Elimination of Violence Against Women, specialized prosecution units, specialized courts, 
all of that gone virtually overnight. And what does that have to do with beauty salons? Well, what it has to do with beauty salons is that beauty salons, until the Taliban closed them, were one of the very few spaces outside the home that was a woman-only space where women could get together, talk to friends, get advice, get help. Um, and that was too much for the Taliban. And so they had to take that away too. Um, yeah. And then, I mean, I could go on, I could go on all day. All these are so important. They're so important to address and that, yeah, the domestic violence too. Now that recent ruling, which I have yet to see the Taliban comments on it, but there were the people were talking about how rather than going to shelters, the Taliban were now taking women out of domestic abuse situations and putting them into prisons. And it's a question of which of these is better. And I don't really know because human rights watch did an excellent roundup on what's happening to women in prisons. And you guys revealed that there was torture going on in prisons. So you're leaving a domestic abuse situation for a torture situation. What it breaks my heart that Afghan women have to live in these circumstances. And you brought up to secondary education, which I remember when the promises were being made, Oh, it's the day we're going to bring them back. We're going to bring them back. And I'm, I'm just sitting there waiting. There's no, I'm thinking there's no way. And right at the last second, they pulled that rug and it almost felt like it was this international red line for lack of a better term that comes to my head where people were going to finally do something if the Taliban did not allow girls to go back to school, but nothing happened. Why do you think that that, why do you think people were so worked up and then just stopped that intervention process? Or do you think that it was more of a, like maybe a media, you know, no one, no one did anything. It was just another media story that died after five days and there was no international real tooth, anything with teeth that made the Taliban change their behavior. I mean, I, I think that that moment when, as you say, I think it was it was in March of, of 2022, um, when the Taliban had said that schools were going to reopen on this this specific day. It was the the new year in Afghanistan, and then um, and then that morning they said, no, actually, you know, not happening. Um, I think I think that that was a turning point in a way. Um, I think that up until that point, um, you know, I think the Taliban had been trying to sort of figure out what relationship they were going to have with the international community, and I think that. You know, perhaps they were genuinely considering reopening the schools. Um, and there's been a lot made out of this idea that there's somehow like pragmatic Taliban, an extremist Taliban, and that, you know, people have a meeting with Sirajuddin Haqqani and he says that he thinks that the girls' schools should be reopened. And so then they go away feeling really special because Sirajuddin Haqqani confided in, him, in them that like he doesn't always agree with his boss and they think, oh, wow, we can really work with him. But, but that misses the point that there's only one person in the Taliban who makes decisions. Um, and that's their supreme leader. And so it doesn't matter what any other member of the Taliban so-called leadership thinks or says or promises to you or, or whatever. And, and I think that after they decided that they would not reopen the schools, I think it did, it did sort of sour in an important way their relationship with the international community. And so they thought, well, you know, let's stop trying to make friends. Let's do whatever we're going to do. Let's not like, you know, sort of hold ourselves back from this vision that we have for what we think is a perfect society, um, which, of course, is unlike any other Muslim majority country on the planet. Um, and, and let's just go straight ahead and the world's going to have to live with us. And so what we've been seeing since then is how is the world 
going to live with them, you know, and is there actually a, a sort of organized, coordinated effort to push back or is it, you know, all sort of chaotic and fragmented and, and it's certainly been much more the latter, much more chaotic and fragmented. And then in the last sort of nine months or so, we've seen this process where the Security Council, you know, was obviously sort of flailing and, and trying to figure out new ideas and a new approach and requested the Secretary General to um, to provide this kind of assessment of what should be done, what should the international strategy be. We saw that report that came out, it was due by November 17th. Um, it was um, prepared by the by a man who's the, the former foreign ministry of, Tur for, sorry, pardon me, former foreign minister of Turkey. Um, and, you know, it, it that report is it's a bit confusing in a lot of ways like it has some good language about how the taliban have to comply with their obligations under international law it has some good language about how afghan women have to play a central role in, in whatever's going to happen with regard to the country but at the same time what it is is a roadmap toward recognition of the taliban and afghan women are saying like how can we even be talking about recognition when actually like the, the crackdown on women is, is getting worse every day. It's not that like there was this terrible crackdown and now everyone's living with it. The crackdown is actually continuing to deepen. There's all kinds of things we haven't even talked about, about being banned from parks and, and gyms and, and Benda near Lake, one of the most beautiful lakes in the world. Like, I mean, some of this just feels sort of intentionally cruel. But um, but also, you know, we see, so there's both new policies that come out cracking down on women, and then there's increased and in, in new types of enforcement of existing decrees. So, for example, just in the last week or two, we've seen in a bunch of different locations around the country, the Taliban actually arresting and detaining not just women, but also girls on accusations of what they say is bad hijab of, of women and girls not complying with whatever the Taliban say the, the dress code for women is. And that is a new and alarming development. Um, as you say, we've documented the, the detention and, and mistreatment and torture of women before, but those women were women's rights protesters. We've also documented women and girls being harassed on the street by Taliban members over their clothing, but we have not in the past seen women being detained and girls being detained over issues about dress code. And so this is one of, unfortunately, a, a huge list of signs that things are continuing to slide downhill. Sure. And I think what was interesting to me about those hijab arrests is that when the Taliban put out their dress directives, they said the first time they just said, oh, you'll never, we won't do anything to you. And then they actually laid it out. Here's what will happen if you disobey our dress directives. And it was your mahram will be prosecuted or brought to the Taliban office or whatever the case may be. It was never that women would be the targets of those arrests or that the Taliban would put their hands on a woman's body, which was something I talked to Fauzia Kufi about this. And she said, you know, that's not our culture that a man would put his hands on a woman. And you can see in the videos of the Taliban putting those women into the, or the, the photos, putting them into the trucks, they're touching these women. And it just seems like a, I just keep thinking they can't do any worse. They can't do any worse. And I keep being completely disappointed. And I wondered, obviously, I don't want to 
give the Taliban any ideas about things that they could take away further from women, but what would they be able to still take away that we haven't yet seen? Well, I mean, there's only one major difference between um, how the Taliban are governing with regard to women and girls now and how they governed from 1996 to 2001 when they were last in power. And that difference is that from 1996 to 2001, um, no education was permitted for girls. Um, and now girls are permitted to study up until sixth grade, although there have been some reports of even that being infringed in, in some parts of the country at, at different times. Um, so that's a major thing they could take away. Um, you know, there's some um, there's participation by women in the private sector, um, except for, of course, um, you know, the beauty salons and and there have been some other areas where they've um you know fired women from particular factories or things like that but 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 there are still um you know in in general women are able to to work in the private sector and, and that's something i think everyone's very afraid of losing there are some exceptions that the taliban have made um to their ban on women working for ngos in the un um, those have been in the areas of, of healthcare and education um, and so that's very fragile feeling as well. I, I wanted to say something about that, that decree that you mentioned, which said that um, if women were not dressed properly, they would punish not the women, but the, the male family member, the Maharam. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an incredibly pernicious thing to do, isn't it? Because it essentially appoints every man, every father, every brother, sometimes every son, as the jailer of the women in, in his own family, it forces men to like be intolerant and, and be, um, you know, sort of endorsers and implementers of the Taliban's kind of vision of, of total subjugation of women. Um, and, and that's like, that's so destructive and harmful, not only, you know, to the sort of freedoms, rights of women, but, but also to the relationships within families. Um, you know, and it comes at a moment, of course, where, where women and girls, you know, they, they didn't just lose their education and their and their employment. They also lost their social networks, their friendships, um, you know, their their um, their financial independence, their ability to contribute financially and sometimes contribute as the breadwinner in in their family. All of this is lost, and so that also changes the the status that women and girls have in in their own families and and so so and the and the Taliban seem to be kind of intentionally driving this this kind of replication of 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 their uh, of their kind of um, deeply abusive gender society into you know, into the family level as well and and that's been so I mean you know, we're hearing a lot about the mental health consequences of all of this for for women and girls including some really distressing reports about increased rates of suicide um, and these issues within families have to be helping to drive that you know Absolutely. And I mean, suicide was an issue before for women who were stuck at home and it, you would hear the stories about using cooking oil to douse yourself and, and self-immolation and things of that nature. But it, I, I've seen reporting that the Taliban are suppressing numbers of suicides among women and all of these. It's very distressing to me. And like you said about the status of Afghan women in their own families, Fauzia said the same thing. She said, you know, now it's it used to be that an Afghan man would stand up 
for the women in his life. And now there's this atmosphere of fear that makes even that not happening. And you're right, it becomes a jail in your own home. And how terrifying and sad is that? I talk to Afghan women now and it's always the same thing. There's one woman who's always sending me messages and I know she's she is beyond depressed. And it is always, I have no hope here. I can't leave my home. I And I, it just hurts my heart. Or a woman I know who was one of the few women who was granted that, um, it wasn't quite a divorce, but the prosecutor said your marriage basically is null and void because her husband abused her since they were married at, I believe she was 13. And at the time of the withdrawal, he said that he was going to take their oldest daughter and marry her off to the Taliban. And she fled. She was trying to flee anywhere she could go. And she ended up in Pakistan and she's just terrified waiting for him. He knows that she's in Pakistan and she's just waiting for the minute that her daughter will have the same fate that she had where she was in this horrible marriage that she hated and where she wasn't able to work or do anything. And now she's a hairdresser who does beautiful work and can't work. And it's anyway, I digress, but these are real people that the Taliban are keeping from reaching their potential, who they're just depriving all of their, they have so much potential. It's, it kills me, but um, that's all, that's what I keep coming back to is it's so depressing to me as a Westerner with all of this freedom in front of me. And I want to get back on track. I wanted to ask you about how you're getting this great data at Human Rights Watch, because the other thing the Taliban has done is crack down on media access. You can't, you know, the freedom of the media does not exist in Afghanistan, um, which makes it, and obviously you can't get into the country uh, to go take these reports and get unbiased information from the Taliban. So how are you able to ascertain what's going on for women in places like prisons and collect data to understand what really is going on behind that curtain that, that the Taliban put up? Um, it's not easy. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, we I mean, it's interesting because during the COVID-19 pandemic, I think we we were forced to sort of have a crash course in, in remote research. Um, and, and some of those lessons have proved to be helpful with situations like Afghanistan. Um, but I, I want to say also that we, we depend a lot on um, on Afghan media outlets. And I think that they really deserve a ton of credit for the way in which they have managed to keep their work going in spite of the, the Taliban's um, very clear attack on media freedom. Um, so, and, you know, I'll mention in particular um, Rukhshana and Zan, which are two Afghan media outlets that specifically cover issues related to women. Um, obviously, they're uh, operating primarily from outside the country, but have amazing contacts and networks and, and I'm sure some very, very hard um, discussions about security and hard decisions that they have to make about how they keep the people who are, are sharing information with them safe um, in an environment where the Taliban are very clearly trying to track down and, and target um, anyone who's speaking out against them. Absolutely. So what kinds of abuses and things have you been able to track then through those media outlets that are still operating with Human Rights Watch? 
Um, so our most recent report is a report that my colleague, um, I have a, a, an Afghan colleague who works with me, her name is Sahar Fetrat, um, and she published a, a report in December about, um, I mean, it might seem surprising for the Women's Rights Division to publish this report, but it's about boys' education, um, because as she likes to point out, that is also a feminist issue, um, for sure, because what boys learn at school um, has a huge impact on the lives of, of women and girls. Um, and, you know, her findings are really alarming. She found that, um, like, really frightening increases in the use of corporal punishment, um, changes, um, really, really worrying changes in the curriculum in a lot of schools with secular subjects being removed, um, always being replaced with more and more religious studies, um, a, a, a real um, shortage of teachers um, because the, the vast majority of secondary school teachers um, in boys' schools were, were women and they were all dismissed from their jobs. And so the Taliban um, sometimes has replaced them with teachers who are, are not qualified. So you might have somebody who used to teach second grade who's now teaching high school physics or something. Um, and, you know, the boys obviously can tell the difference. And in some cases, they weren't replaced at all. And so boys are sitting in a classroom with no teacher, um, you know, trying to, to teach themselves from their textbooks. And you won't be surprised to hear that in that circumstance, um, a lot of boys quit coming to school. You know, they think, look, like the plans that I had for, you know, passing the, the Concord exam, moving on to university, that they're not going to happen because I can't get a proper education at school anymore. And so, you know, I'll, I'll quit and I'll go to work. I'll quit and I'll, I'll try to get to Iran so I can send money home to my family by working there, et cetera. So, so you know, we, we talk a lot about how, you know, Afghanistan has become sort of the, the graveyard. I mean, I think this is something Shahrazad Akbar said Afghanistan has become the graveyard of, of, of the hopes and dreams um, and futures of, of Afghan girls and women. But unfortunately, I think that that's also true for quite a few boys. Sure. And I, I think about all of the attention that has been given in this country, rightly so, to, you know, education loss that we experienced during the COVID pandemic, which was, you know, two years of of distance learning in some cases, but never not learning at all. You know, it was just an amended approach to learning. And I, I can't imagine what it then is like, because from my understanding in Afghanistan, many kids didn't go to school during the pandemic as well. Like in-person classes were not allowed and there wasn't distance learning and, you know, a remote village in, in Helmand. Uh, so you've got this long-term loss of education and hope for the future, like you're saying, and it, it does just, I reckon back to uh, when Jason Houck talked about going in 2002 and trying to rebuild Afghan society. And it was at, I think he said negative 50. It wasn't at zero, it was below. And that's where we're, the Taliban are taking society is way back down below where we worked so hard. Um, I want to talk about some of the things you did talk about this in Rose episode, but I'd love you to address it now. Uh, there's work being done at the international level now to prove that the Taliban are committing gender apartheid and crimes. I believe it's crimes against humanity in Afghanistan. I might have that term wrong, but I'd love for you to talk about some of those efforts to prove those things and maybe then be able to, you know, have a case to, I, I don't really know how th that helps, but I'd love to hear more about it because I know that you are very well read on those subjects. So, yeah, so I think um, a lot of Afghan 
women's rights defenders. You know, they feel like they, they've, they've spent two and a half years now trying at the kind of diplomatic level, trying at the level of like the Human Rights Council, the Security Council, you know, talking to diplomats and capitals, talking to ambassadors, saying, you know, look, you need to do more. You need to stand up for us. You need to push back against the Taliban. And, you know, and, and what they've gotten for that is a situation where things keep getting worse. And so I think that an increasing number of them are, are kind of focusing their their efforts and their hopes more on, on a couple of different legal strategies. Um, so there are three legal strategies, really, that, that people are working on, um, and I'll, I'll talk about each of them. Um, the first one, as you mentioned, is, is um, the idea of gender apartheid. Gender apartheid is a term that Afghan women have been using to describe the, the way that the Taliban treat women um, for a long time, since definitely the period from 1996 to 2001, when the Taliban were previously in power. Um, but the, the complication... so so. You know, this term has been used a lot since the, the takeover in August 2021, but, but people started asking the question of like, does this actually mean something? Is this a legal concept or is this just like a, a, a phrase that we use that, that, you know, seems accurate to a lot of people? And, and that the answer to that is a, a little bit complicated. Um, and there's a, a really fantastic expert named Karima Banoon, who's talked a lot about this and has written a, a really important law review article about this. But, but to, to try and, and simplify it, the, the answer to the question is that um, international law at the moment doesn't specifically mention gender apartheid. Um, Professor Benoon believes that judges could read it into existing law, but it's not, it's not written down on the page. Um, but Afghan activists are seeing an opportunity to try to get it written down on the page in international law. And that opportunity is through a process that's going on right now where the United Nations is considering adopting a new treaty, which is on crimes against humanity, as you mentioned. Um, in that treaty, in the draft as it currently exists, there's a prohibition on apartheid and there's a definition of apartheid. And what the activists are asking is that that definition of apartheid be amended to say that apartheid can be committed not only on racial grounds, but also on the grounds of gender. Um, so, you know, these processes of trying to adopt a new UN treaty are, are long and complicated and very, very political, of course. Um, but um, something interesting that's happened in the last week or so is that um, countries have had the opportunity to submit comments, written comments on the, the current draft of the treaty. And so 30 of those countries um, submitted comments um, by by December. And out of those 30 sets of comments, six of them specifically mentioned gender apartheid. So I think that that's a sign that this campaign is, is really getting some significant traction. Um, and the next thing that will happen in that process is a, another meeting at the UN um, to discuss the treaty that will happen in April of this year. So that's coming up pretty soon. And, and there's a lot of work that Afghan activists are doing around that. Um, the second legal strategy that I want to mention is, of course, um, looking to the International Criminal Court for prosecutions. Um, and the International Criminal Court has been looking into the situation in Afghanistan since 2006. And so a lot of people lost hope a long time ago that anything would ever happen. And it's been especially painful to see that the International Criminal Court has been much more responsive on issues related to Ukraine, issues related to Israel, 
um, and Afghanistan feels very forgotten, but people are still holding out hope. People are still, um, you know, making submissions to the court, arguing to them about why they need to, to prioritize Afghanistan and move forward. Um, and one of the ways that they could move forward is by bringing charges for a, a crime that's called gender persecution. And that also seems like a pretty good fit for some of the Taliban's actions. Um, the third thing I'll mention, which is, is particularly timely at the moment, is that there's been a, an effort to look at bringing a, a case against um, against the Taliban, against Afghanistan in a, a different international court, which is called the International Court of Justice. And you might have been hearing about the International Court of Justice lately because that's where South Africa has brought a case against Israel. Um, and so there's been this sort of wave of attention to that particular court at the moment. It's um, one of the things that, that happens in that court is that one country can bring a lawsuit against another country, bring up not um, a lawsuit, a case. Anyway, um, and a, one of the types of cases that they could bring is a case against another country saying that that country is violating the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is a convention that Afghanistan ratified in 2003 and which the Taliban are bound by, whether they want to be or not. Um, and so there's been a, there's been a kind of a, a, a search for a country or countries that might be willing to um, bring that type of a case against Afghanistan in the same way that South Africa has brought this case against Israel. And, um, and that is an ongoing effort. There isn't a country that has stepped forward publicly to say that they'll do that. Um, but I, I wonder if the, the recent attention because of the Israel case, Israel-South Africa case, may sort of, you know, prompt people to, to think more actively about that. Sure. I can't think of many countries that have not been impacted by the withdrawal in a serious way in terms of refugees and things of that nature. And so I would hope that a country that has been impacted could do that. And I mean, one of the things that's powerful, though, about the International Court of Justice is that it doesn't have to be a country that's been impacted. It could be any sure. country in the world, you know, it sure. could be <laughs> just could some be a, country be... that wants to do good. <laughs> Exactly. Not just exactly. a country that's <laughs> saying, oh my gosh, I'm overwhelmed with, yeah. Yeah, it could be a country on the other side of the world that's never had anything to do with Afghanistan, but that sure. feels like what's happening is unacceptable and they want to they be in solidarity with Afghan women. So it just takes one country. That. I would love that. that. That does seem like it would not be a difficult thing to do um, and could actually have a, a great outcome. You know, I wanted to talk to about the impact that this has on everyone. I've, I have so many friends and family who, you know, I think they might think I'm a little nutty for still, you know, talking about Afghanistan ad nauseum, but it impacts all of us in subtle ways. And I wanted to ask you, because you, you alluded to this in the episode with Ro, there is an impact that Afghanistan has on the Western world and that these restrictions on women have on the Western world. And I'll say that I've seen it online. I've seen a lot of misogyny from Taliban supporters or sympathizers affecting Western women who are attempting to stand up for Afghan women. But I'm sure that there are other ways in which that misogynistic and just horrifying worldview leaks out and affects the rest of us. So could you talk a bit about what those impacts are yeah, I mean, so I mean, I'm part of a team at Human Rights Watch. We're about 15 people working on women's rights all over the world, and 
you know, I, I think it's, it's sort of broadly understood by women's rights activists everywhere that we're in the middle of a global backlash. Um, you know, that there's still progress on women's rights in, in some countries. We still see good things happening, but there's a big pushback happening. That's happening at the national level. It's happening sometimes at the local level. It's happening at the level of the United Nations. Um, and it's really, really harmful. And we're seeing some of the, the things that we fought very hard for and, and that were, you know, felt like great and important achievements being, being taken away again. And so we're really having a, a very clear understanding at the moment that the trajectory of women's rights is, is not always forward. Um, and in that context, I think that um, the situation in Afghanistan and the the kind of poor and and, um, and limp response by the international community to that situation is is both is both driving that backlash in some ways and also is a, a symptom of that backlash. I think that um, you know we we're really seeing how little. Um, political capital countries are prepared to expend on women's rights. We have to be aware of the fact that the vast majority of political leaders are still men. Um, you know, I think we see we see quite a bit of lip service paid to women's rights, but but never really very much actual kind of um, prioritizing of women's rights when it comes time to like bilateral relation to when it comes to bilateral relations and and horse trading and and the kinds of things that happen of course in, in foreign policy all the time and I, I think that that has enormous implications for women's rights globally I think that you know there are many groups uh, in other parts of the world and there are governments as well who um, you know have views on gender that might not be completely different to to those of the Taliban and and they're watching the situation and they're feeling like wow you know, we can do whatever we want, you know, like, um, you know, the, the, the bar for what, um, you know, what could be done in terms of oppressing women and girls got, got so much lower on August 15th, 2021. And, and that can't not affect every woman in the world, including you and me and, and everyone, you know? Oh, absolutely. It's devastating. And I, I've, I've started rethinking this situation in my head as you were talking is, you know, women in this country have seen their rights get stripped away in the last few years. And, and I remember the nineties, just watching these really strong women in the spotlight coming forward and saying, you know, these situations matter. Right. And I just expected that there would be women doing that here, like, you know, celebrity type women. I know Jennifer Lawrence did, uh, work with a, a great Afghan filmmaker to create a film about Afghan women. But that's pretty much the only thing I've seen as a big campaign. But now I'm thinking, oh, well, we're dealing with this other large issue of women's rights. And so maybe you start to just, you know, you can't focus on all the things at the same time. But I do wish that that there would be some great campaign that would be a groundswell of support for doing something more in terms of supporting Afghan women and finding them. And yet at the same time, I will say too, every time I talk to somebody who has a platform, they're like, oh yeah, I have a small girl's school that I run in secret in Afghanistan. And I'm, and I'm so heartened by that. So there are, there are great small efforts and there is, I think, hope. Um, there were 
there's one other thing I wanted to talk about, and that is that hopeless feeling. All these women, we've talked about the situations that they're in, the things that they've lost, um, the difficulties that they're experiencing because of the Taliban. And I really think that it would benefit them to hear that they won't be eternally relegated to the darkness in their homeland that they're subjected to now. And I'm hoping that you might have some insights that would bring them a kernel of hope about you know, what is to come and what they can expect in terms of the longevity of the Taliban or the possibility that they once again might have the rights to move freely, dress as they want, educate themselves, get access to public services and healthcare, et cetera. So what would you say to bring hope to Afghan women right now? Um, I mean, they don't need me to bring them hope. <laughs> but I would say that, you know, we should all be, I mean, you know, there are so many Afghan activists and Afghan women that we should be inspired by. But um, but I'm particularly inspired by the protesters um, because, you know, as as you as you pointed out, we we've actually documented some of the abuses they've faced. So we, we understand really well what risks they face when they go out on the street and protest against the Taliban. And the fact that that they're still doing that, they're still going out and protesting. Um, you know, I think it, it just. Um, it just really signals the fact that um, women are never going to give up demanding their rights. They are never going to say, well, that's what the Taliban said, so I guess I have to live with it. You know, they're never going to put up with this situation. And the Taliban will lose in the end because, you know, these are women's rights. We all have a right to be equal and, and nothing is ever going to change that. And so the Taliban are, are a temporary, you know, devastating dystopia, but they will pass um, and all of the damage that they've done to to women, to the entire society, you know, that will be a very, very long and, and perhaps permanent project to, to try to repair that. But um, but people will rebuild Afghanistan. And it will be a more rights respecting society. And, and I also feel really inspired by young Afghan women, which, you know, is, is often the same group as the protesters. You know, there's this this younger generation of Afghans and they have a vision for what kind of country they want to live in. And, and you know, and, and they're going to they're going to make that happen. This is just a very big obstacle in their way, but they will overcome it. I absolutely agree. These are women who have fought so hard. I often think, you know, that maybe the world still sees Afghan women in their head as women clad in a giant light blue burqa, because that's what we saw from the 90s when, you know, women were forced to be that way. But none of the Afghan women I talk with are that way. They all fought so hard to be educated. They fought so hard to be employed, to be able to, you mentioned this in Rose episode, live on their own in an apartment in Kabul. All of these things that I take for granted that they fought so hard for and they have more fire inside of them. You know, the Taliban have picked a bad enemy. <laughs> That's what I would say is that Afghan women really do have so much um, motivation to do amazing things. And so I'm, I am also very hopeful, but it is very frustrating to see the lack of, you know, any real, to see Tom West visit the Taliban and barely talk about women's rights or to see foreign policy experts post in foreign policy magazine and not mention, you know, to say, let's start thinking about recognizing the Taliban, but we don't even, we, we shouldn't talk to them about women's rights because that might upset them. Like, excuse me while I choke on my coffee. Um, anyway, I digress again. I think that's great. 
I think Afghan women will have their chance to to 100% do all the things that they right now are not able to do. And I'm glad that you are fighting for keeping everything that is going on right now in the forefront of people's attention and with boys too, boys schools, all of these things, they all add up to a very destabilizing situation that uh, is going to take a long time to rectify. Um, We always close out our episode. If we have one with a story from someone from Afghanistan, uh, because we want, you know, it's one thing for you and I to sit here and talk about the struggles of Afghans, but we really want to have an authentic Afghan voice on every episode. And today we do actually have a letter. Uh, it is from an Afghan woman whom we're calling Latifa. And she's talking about she and her husband, uh, Fazal, also a pseudonym, escaping tragedy by fleeing to Pakistan. And uh, they were among very few people who were able to get humanitarian parole and now they are trying to make that work. So I'm going to read this story in Latifa's own words. And I do have an update at the end, which is hopeful. I am Latifa from Afghanistan, a member of the civil society. My husband, Fazal, a former officer of the border police and the head of the K-9 team, was on duty in Bandar Haritan, the border of Afghanistan and Uzbekistan. After the fall of the Afghan government at the hands of the barbaric and terrorist group of the Taliban, everything collapsed at once. On the day of the fall of Bandar, my husband could not leave his duty and ran away because of his dog. So he was arrested. He was humiliated for working with a training dog. And when the wild Taliban group found out that he was a Hazara and a Shiite, he was beaten and tortured. Even the wild gang killed his dog and my husband barely escaped from the room where he was imprisoned. He came home after three days and it was early on uh, for the ban on girls' education. My activity continued until one day when we went to the streets for a demonstration and the wild group of Taliban dispersed the women by using tear gas and beating them. And I was also seriously injured. (coughs) On the same day, my cell phone was taken from me by a group of savages. I fainted and when I regained consciousness, I was in the hospital. After three days of treatment in the hospital, I was discharged and went home. My mobile phone was missing. There was no news from my friends. A few days later, I was detected by the wild Taliban group and they attacked our house at night. And my family and I loudly informed the neighbors who luckily prevented them from entering the house. And I managed to escape with my husband and two children. And we reached the border of Pakistan at night and smuggled ourselves into the country. We have been in Pakistan for two years and we are living the worst days of our lives. Every day is a year. In October of 2022, we were included in the US humanitarian parole system. Four days ago, we received a letter from USCIS asking for passports and certificates, but unfortunately, we could not prepare those documents. Please, for the sake of humanity, help us. And I will say that this is another of many uh, instances where someone from Afghanistan who is unable to work currently as a refugee in Pakistan, legal or not, you are not able to work, um, needs funds to be able to complete something that we are offering as a service and yet they need these funds that cannot magically be appeared. And the hopeful part I'll add about that is that uh, someone did donate to Latifa and Fazal and now they do have all of the necessary passports and papers and hopefully we'll find safety in the US soon. So for any Afghans who are listening, um, who would like to share their story, we would love to hear it. Anything that you want to, to say, any way you wanna share it, if you wanna share a sound file or a video file, you can send that correspondence to our show address, which is the Afghanistan Project Podcast at gmail.com. 
Um, Heather, I just want to say it's amazing to have you. Your zeal for supporting Afghan women is incredible. And I just think it's made such an incredible impact on on everybody who engages with you. So thank you for being here to talk about this really important topic. Thanks so much for covering it. And thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Well, thank you to all of our listeners for sharing your time and supporting the people of Afghanistan. Tasha Kaur, and we hope to see you again soon.